0: I like the challenge of the adaptation of the day. I kind of look at my days the same at this point too. Like, I I know certain things are gonna be scripted out, but if things are too scripted, you can't adapt. And we see that with athletes that are just so entrenched in routine that they then struggle when that routine gets thrown off. In the pro sports world, (laughs) you better get ready for stuff to
1: get thrown off. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Andrew Hauser is the director of performance rehab for the Los Angeles Dodgers. In this episode, we discuss how losing his leg in a car accident in high school allowed him to develop adaptation and resiliency skills. We discuss how those two skills have shaped his perspective on developing athletes, managing his health, and how they were instrumental in him being able to adapt to difficult circumstances during the Dodgers World Series run. If you find today's podcast valuable, go to www.ericcoram.com and sign up for my high performance newsletter. In this newsletter, I provide you valuable resources and information to help you pursue audacious goals, thrive in uncertainty, and live a healthy and fulfilled life. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Andrew, it's great to have you on today. Thanks for taking some time out. I just want to just start with your senior year of high school. You lost your leg your senior year of high school. Could you talk about that story and really kind of how that changed your life? Yeah, yeah, that's a bit
0: of a mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it was actually, it was the day we got back from our state tournament my senior year of high school. Got home late, and yeah, I was driving home. I mean, it was it's probably two in the morning, honestly, so it was pretty late, but mm. I lived kind of out in the country a little bit, and I uh, fell asleep at the wheel. I, I still remember like the music I was listening to. I woke up, overcorrected, ended up in a ditch. Just couldn't get out of the ditch. Hit a hit a telephone pole head on and the pole actually fell onto my lap across the car. Compound fractured my femur. I busted up my ribs pretty good. I punctured a lung. And then the door, somehow, however, I hit the, the pole, the door actually wrapped around my left leg and amputated it on site
1: mm.
0: about five inches below my knee. <laughs> In and out of consciousness for really from then on an older couple happened to take the the long way home from a movie that night and they found me I mean within five minutes I, w- I would have bled out otherwise mm-hmm. I was ironically 100 I lived out in the country but I was a uh, hundred yards from a fire station <laughs> and so they uh, the power was out because of how the pole I hit and they went and, and got them and so like I, I remember talking to the firefighters vaguely remember talking to the couple kind of the last thing I remember, before getting life flighted out of there i, I actually remember getting at least onto the, the aircraft they asked me like if i could feel everything and like i, I had a lot of blood in my leg i mean i was staring at my femur sticking mm. out of my leg just kind of holding pressure on my on my thigh at the time so I, I moved my hands like i moved my my head and my neck um i tried to get out i mean that that wasn't happening but I move my right foot and I'm I'm wearing jeans and I'm looking down at my left leg, try to move my left foot. And like, just nothing's happening. Like it doesn't look like it's torn off, but yeah, it's just not moving. And that's that, I mean, that's when I went into shock more or less. Like I said, I remember getting on the, the aircraft, but then the next, it's like the next afternoon I woke up and my, my dad was there. And so that was uh, a big
1: gap from, from that point on. Andrew, like up until this point, you're a teenager, you think life's going to be a certain way. You're going to be a baseball player. Like what was your mindset before? And then kind of what happened afterwards? How did your mindset shift?
0: Uh, I mean, mindset up until that point was like, you know what, like I'm going to go to school, play ball, just kind of figure out the rest. Like everything else will fall into place. I didn't really know what I wanted to do from a school perspective as far as educationally. Again, I, I just kind of thought the that it would, it would fall into place. And uh, I mean, I had always associated myself with like being the athlete. Like that was my personal like identity. And so it was, it was a big eye opener because it's like, okay, now you have to like really look in the mirror and like figure out who are you, who you actually are as a person, not as the player. Cause I, I mean, I think that's how we associate ourselves. That's how we fit in to some extent. I think as, uh, as we're growing up, at least for me, I think it, you know it makes you feel important. And so that was yeah, I mean, talk about an emotional roller coaster. I was honestly, I was just so happy to like after the accident, I was just so like I was high on life. I was just so happy like to be alive and mm. really to have another another crack at this whole life thing.
1: Yeah, so you felt fortunate. Yeah. Oh yeah. You didn't have this spiral of like Why has this happened to me or did you have that?
0: I never really had that. Like I I don't want to say like there weren't times where I was down, but I never really saw it that way. Again, I I think it it just put things in perspective for me. It was like I had 20, 40 vision and, and I it got corrected almost. Like it just brought things kind of into focus, like family, friends. Yeah, I mean spiritual life for that matter. And again, like, it's like, phew, I had no idea what I wanted to, to do up to that point. And that's, uh, that's honestly, that's how I got into what I'm doing now went to physical therapy and was like, okay, like, I, I just wanted to be pushed again. Like I, you don't take the athlete out of yourself, you know, like, no. and so I actually started seeing an athletic trainer and, and in retrospect, like she was an amateur boxer. Really cool lady, and um, she she really trained me like a strength coach. So, like at that point, I thought that's what athletic training was. I, which by the name you would one would assume, like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and so, like I was like, oh okay, like maybe this is what I should do. It was like the first time school wise, I think. Like I always loved like history and and that sort of thing, and like I enjoyed school. For the most part, but that was like the first thing I was like, this is awesome. Like, why wouldn't Mm -hmm. I want to do this? Come to find out, they
1: are technically different things. Could you explain that for those that are listening, like the difference between an athletic trainer and a strength conditioning coach in in a professional world where you and I've come from?
0: Yeah. So, athletic training is. The closest thing to it is really like a physical therapist, but that with more of a first responder mindset, like, so you're there mm-hmm. to take care of injuries when they happen on the field, depending on the sport, I think at this point and uh, the organization, like you're, you're really in charge of the day-to-day treatment and rehab processes. And then strength and conditioning is like, you pretty much have them the rest of the time. You know, it's, it is, it's truly like their physical preparation. Mm -hmm. but there's so much gray area. I think it's, everything's connected, you know? Yep. I mean, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that. Like they're siloed by, I guess, licensure, but they're the same.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I think Charlie Weingroff's the one that said training is rehab and rehab is training. And like, this applies to so many other domains, but like, if you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, uh, true elite performing organizations have like, there are no walls. And I know you and I are going to talk about that here in a little bit, but you, so you basically, you have this amazing athletic trainer that helps rehab you back. And how old are you at this point? It took me about probably
0: backtrack a little bit. I was probably put into a prosthetic. It happened June 1st of 03. I was put into a prosthetic in November which quite a while. And from there, I mean, I was probably walking without a, without crutches, probably a month by December at some point. Um, and things just kind of accelerated. I was 18 when it happened. So Mm. I was probably running
1: about a year out. So about 19 at that point. And so did you like then go, okay, now I want to be an athletic trainer. I want to be this person to a PT. I want to be the person that helps people get back. I mean, what was the process? I'll tell you what, it, the, this was probably the period where it was like just
0: trying to figure out again, like who I was, like I was, so I just kind of redirected. I didn't want to fall behind school wise. So I like, I went to a junior college the first semester of that freshman year that so I, cause I mean, I was still going back and forth between the, the hospital and like appointments. I mean, I was on crutches that literally until November of that, which Kansas city gets a lot of ice, which is where I grew up. So ice and crutches don't mix well, (laughs) No, but yeah. So, and then I went to, I enrolled in the university of Kansas. And so that second semester of my freshman year, and I was just taking like all my core curriculum classes at that point. So I was rehabbing, but I had not started with her when I um, had started at Kansas or I had just started. So my thought was like, man, I'll be a history major and political science and, and maybe think about like law school. Like I had, I really had no idea. And then at that point it was, as I started going and seeing her more, I was just driving back from Lawrence, which is where the university of Kansas is to Kansas city to rehab with her. And that's, that just started to pick up steam. So I, I remember, I actually remember like looking at the, so when we saw to look at catalogs to see what yeah. classes we had, uh, I remember looking at the catalog. I was like, Oh, like athletic training. They, they actually have it. And so like I, I reached out to the program director, came at an interesting time because the program director was actually on his way out and the, the program had actually uh, like revamped going into that next year. But yeah, got my, kind of got my foot in the door and started getting hours. That's, that's literally right when the curriculum, athletic training curriculum changed because before it was almost like you just you'd got a certain number of hours and what, but the school then started setting up the hours, Mm. hours for you and putting you with sports. And so, yeah, I remember I went and I found a chiropractor in town that uh, it's funny how you you just meet these different people along the way that just kind of set you down a different path. Like this chiropractor, Mm. he was just very hands-on. All he did was really ART active release for, for the listeners. And I was like, Oh, well, this guy is getting really good results seeing people maybe twice a week for 15 minutes. And then I was like seeing stuff in the training room where people would be sitting with an ice pack on their leg or East end. I was like, man, something's different here. So I I spent a lot of time with him. And so that was uh, kind of my first, that was definitely a light bulb moment after my initial light bulb of like, okay, this is all the same. I was seeing something a little different in the training room. This chiropractor was doing things way different, and then it was, it was funny because I the next athletic trainer I worked for had actually been a, a strength coach before he was an, ever an athletic trainer. I was like, okay, Smurfy? all those pieces are yeah,
1: yeah. He's a good. He's a good friend.
0: Murph, um, I haven't talked to him for a while, but um, yeah. but yeah. So it was like okay, every like the people I was starting to fall in line with were just speaking the same language. Yep, and then I was this will come full circle a couple of times, but my coach growing up when I was, I was like in middle school, late middle school, early high school, Kevin Seitzer. So he used to play for the Kansas City Royal. He's like a yeah, 10 plus year big leaguer. Yeah. So he was the hitting coach for the Arizona Diamondbacks at the time. And I, I remember I had sent letters out to, shoot, this would have been my beginning of my junior year probably of college. And I had sent letters out to like, All the NFL teams, all the baseball teams, a few hockey teams, and like just trying to get some feelers out there on like an internship opportunity. Because at that point, still like I grew up playing baseball, but I grew up playing everything. So it was like it's and and that's one thing for me. It's always been more about the type of people I think and, and drive that a lot of athletes had rather than the sport itself. And about as I've done this longer, just about the people like that you're working with. So Kevin was actually the hitting coach for the Arizona Diamondbacks at the time. Uh, he was just instrumental, first off, in uh, in a lot of my my comeback. Like we spent a lot of time on the phone, like Bible study, we did a lot of things mm-hmm. after my accident. But I just told him, I said, "Hey, I'm not asking for a job. Can you just pass along my my resume to the head trainer?" So he did that. And I got a call probably a week later and then I got a, I had to interview, but I mean, shoot, that was, so that gentleman was, his name was Ken Crenshaw. I mean, he's become probably one of my biggest professional mentors
1: at this mm-hmm. point. So, so that was your entrance into major league baseball. Yeah. yeah. And that was when? Yeah. 2000. That was that would have been, let's see, it was my
0: junior year of college. It was like '06. I want to say. And so, I, yeah, I interviewed with their medical coordinator at the time, who, good friend. He's actually, now he's the head trainer with the Cubs. So, it, it's just funny how, like, that network expanded. But, yeah, and I went out and spent the whole summer of that year between my junior and senior year with the, uh, it was, like, minor league rehab. So, it was, like, the long-term minor league rehab in the morning and kind of, like, their extended spring training group until camp broke. And then uh, when the AAA team, that's when everything was in Tucson for them. When the AAA team was at home, I'd go spend the evenings with them. So some long days. And, <laughs> and, and through that, I actually met, I met, uh, so I was put in contact with a, a gentleman at the University of Arizona who, he was friends with one of our athletic trainers at Kansas. He just really befriended, befriended me and like would invite me out to just to meet different people away from baseball. And that's when I met so Neil Ramp at the time, who's who I work with now. I worked with in Arizona and I work with now in LA, was the men's basketball strength coach at the U of A at the time. So that's that's how we originally met, even.
1: Wow, this is pretty incredible. I mean, it's like when you start really unpacking how one event led to another event led to another event, but we, you had caught, you know, probably in your mind, like we all do, you kind of have this track of where I'm going, what I'm doing, where I'm headed. And what's impressive to me is that you had a massive 180 or left turn, but you didn't let that stop you. You, you know, I just think it's really admirable that instead of like waking up going, you mean, know, having this cycle of like, why, why, why? I was like, okay got another shot at this thing. And that explains a lot to me about your positive mental affect that you've always seemed to have. But I want to zip ahead a little bit. And we can come back to the rest of this. But Los Angeles Dodgers won the World Series. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, you're the director of performance rehab. And we had this quarantine, this global pandemic. How did your experience with having to deal with tragedy, having to deal with all of this difficulty, help you persist in like a but I mean, this has been a crazy year and not easy. I mean, I, not easy at all for anybody. I don't care for, I mean, like your job, you know, your, your sequester. Like, how did that help you with your mental resolve to keep pushing forward? I'll tell you
0: what, I mean, there was just so much what made this year so bizarre. There's just so much unknown. Like we didn't, I mean, we're 10 days away from breaking camp and it was really like, like somebody was just drawing up a comic book or something on everything that was happening. I remember like, Hey, like our doctor's going to come in and talk about this COVID-19 thing that's going on. Just address the team. He does that one week. And then literally midway through the week, I remember there was a statement from uh, major league baseball And the organization saying, hey, like players, you shouldn't autograph anything. Like just no interaction with fans hands on right now. We're just trying to figure out what this thing is all about. And uh, they like giving them cards and baseballs and stuff to sign to give out. And then it, it couldn't have been more than four or five days later when just everything shut down. And how spring training goes in and of itself is like, especially guys that have, I mean, we have a team that's, I mean, won the division now eight eight years in a row. A lot of playoff experience. And as you accumulate guys that have a lot of playoff experience, they really start to mentally dial it in. I'd say that lasts like 10 days to two weeks. And you really start to see a shift. And all of a sudden, that's just gone. Everybody's saying like, oh, maybe we'll be back in May. Maybe nobody knew anything. So again, it's just, it's just that big unknown. I mean, the team team is frustrated because obviously nobody's playing, but, you know, you've got a window where you feel like you can really win this whole thing.
1: Yeah. You built all this momentum. You come out of training camp and in any sport, you're ready to go. Everybody's optimistic. You're ready to go. And you have such a long, grueling season. I can imagine like everybody's ready to go and then done, you know, I guess you fell back on your ability to adapt. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it,
0: this—it's funny because we always talk about like this is a game, like it's a game of adaptation. Um, just things get thrown on you at the last minute. It's, I mean, everything's shifting on the fly. There's—they talk about Groundhog's Day because I mean, we play so many games. I mean, it's a 162 games in 183 days. Mm. Just that's just the regular season, but no day's the same. Again, like <laughs> game times are always changing. Like. The injuries that you're dealing with are always changing. Uh, obviously, travels—we're pretty much home a week and then gone a week would be—I mean—a normal season.
1: So if if the game's changing, it's Groundhog Day, but it, the game's always changing. Like, how do you stay dialed in? That's <laughs> that's that is definitely the
0: tricky part. Again, I, I think uh, so for me, like I have, I just have routines that, like during the season when I'm at home, I know I'm gonna wake up, I'm going to have breakfast with my wife. I'm going to just try to maximize the time we have together. Uh, and then working out is always kind of my respite. Um, and that's just kind of how I've always been since I got into this profession. Oddly, I, I think, I know it's a stressor, but it's uh, it's also a way for me to like de-stress. So yeah, I mean, that that kind of keeps me at least in focus. And I'm I'm always looking for like people to connect with, and again, my mind's going a lot of different directions, so i just looking for ways to grow that that's kind of the thing that keeps me like motivated fueled and and dialed in. I mean when I can connect with that's how you and I originally connected um, when I can connect with other professionals in, in different domains, I feel like that keeps me personally sharp and like i'm always it it allows me to always question like if there's a better way, again, just takes me down some different paths.
1: Yeah. I mean, time management, I think is something that's important to you. You've mentioned before, how do you manage your time?
0: (laughs) Uh, It's it's funny because so we just, um, we just hired a new uh, minor league medical coordinator and that's, that's like the first conversation you have to have with them. Um, So every level, like as you're, as you're going up the chain in professional sports, and I think this is any sport for any part of our profession you find something i think new about yourself <laughs> that you didn't know like oh i knew way more than i thought i could and it's funny how as you're going up um in responsibilities it's like you, that that's i think one of the difficult things about probably getting thrown into the fire of something you've never done like if you were to go from school into let's say a director role like oh okay this is what it's all about <laughs> that's uh that's a totally different different thing than i thought but Um, I I think that's uh, one of the great things about, you know, Nick Saban always talks about the process. So like Mm -hmm. you're getting, you're just growing gradually, like what you think you can actually do with your time. And then I'm a big list guy, so I've always got lists going. So I think I like the dopamine response I get every time I mark something off, (laughs) but uh, lists. And again, like, so like how I start my day, I'm going to I'm gonna wake up, I'm gonna take like a kind of a cooler shower, not freezing. And then I, I, I go into actually like a, a breathing meditation thing I do just to uh, I, I always go back to my breath and like it's it's like talk about coordination. I'm trying to essentially coordinate my breath and my mind every day before mm. I get going right now. Um, and it just kind of helps me get back to a a balanced place so no matter where kind of things are going at work where my training's at it helps me kind of recenter and then start the day and then I'll drink coffee eat breakfast I try to do that before my wife's up and about so
1: do you use like a certain planner or anything to time plan out your day I definitely did
0: that more so when I was um, so when I was overseeing everything with the Braves I was very like particular about how my, my daily planner was. Now I think maybe I should still do that, but I, again, I, I know I'm going to get that done. And then I know certain things like that are in my phone, like I'll have on my phone calendar throughout the day. Yeah. And I know like, okay, I've got to check these things off. I've just got to have an idea of like when my training is going to be and like when my time with my wife is going to be. <laughs> and, uh, and then, from there, I like the challenge of the adaptation of the day, actually.
1: Okay, lean into that for a
0: second. Again, so you just don't know, especially with some of these phone calls. It's funny because my wife was asking me yesterday. I said, so like when you talk to, let, let's say yourself, like do you have questions you, you script out? Like I, like I always like to do my background on somebody before I, before I talk to them the first time. And that's usually how we get put in contact. But I like to see where the conversation is going to go. Mm. And I, I kind of look at my days the same at this point, too. Like, I, I know certain things are going to be scripted out, but uh, if things are too scripted, you, you can't adapt. And we see that with athletes that are just so entrenched in routine that they then struggle when that routine gets thrown off. And in the pro sports world, <laughs> you better get ready for stuff to get thrown off.
1: No question. I mean, it's never... It's situational. Yeah. Baseball's a situations game, you know, football, which I spent most of my career into situations. Most games aren't linear, like track, run straight ahead and take a left-hand turn. Even then you have to adjust to which lane you're in. But how can somebody that's maybe not in sports apply this to their life? Yeah. Ooh, you know what?
0: And that's what I think just high performance is in general. It's
1: a it's, uh, big
0: part of it's the ability to adapt. Like I feel like from a simplistic turn, like you're, you're trying to maximize the coordination of your systems. And as you can do that, you become more adaptable. So the more you grow different areas of your life, I think gives you more room or range to adapt to situations. I think that's, that's why part of like why, like my music taste is super eclectic. And like, I like to read a lot of different books because again, it's, I've kind of unknowingly done a lot of these things. But as you talk through them, you're like, oh, you got to adapt. And at that point, like that's, again, to take this thing full circle, my car accident, like if I take nothing away from that, like it's, you just have to be ready to adapt. You you, you really don't know what, what life's going to hit you with day day to day. I mean, that was, I can tell you that was the last thing on my mind when I was a senior in high school was the possibility. I mean, you think you're invincible the possibility of losing a limb and changing your entire, well, I say changing your entire life course, but I guess I ended up in, uh, in pro sports, just a different route.
1: Maybe because of,
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you, like, I, I would not take away what happened. Is it what I thought my life was going to be when I was a seven year old kid and (laughs) imagine like playing like make believe on, on what I was going to do when I got older. No, nah, I mean, no, but I, I did dress up like a pirate a lot. So maybe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Has this ability to adapt helped you connect with different players better? Cause they're all different. They come from different places. I mean like pro sports is like a smattering of people from all over the place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hadn't really thought about it from that perspective, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I generally probably create the best relationships with probably some of the more interesting and diverse personalities,
1: <laughs> mm. if,
0: if you will. But yeah, and I mean, and that's one of the things I think, to your point about pro sports, is like you have to appreciate all of these individuals that are coming together. They have such different upbringings, they have such different experiences. And I think any athlete, you work with any person you work with, like I've spent time in a physical therapy clinic, Like you just have to meet people where they're at. People want to, they want to feel important. They want to feel valued. And like, no matter what their background is, I don't think that changes. Um, so you have to adapt to that personality and to what makes that person feel important. Like mm. What do they enjoy? I think we lose that a lot with, Talk about adaptability, like in, when you get into some of these higher up responsibility roles, you have to wear your budget hat. You have to wear your, you know, your leader of the department hat. You have to wear the interaction with the players, You, your front office, like all the like scouts, like there's so many different individuals you come in contact with. Um, you have to be able to adapt to those those conversations and those people because they're not The same thing does not make each one of them tick, Hmm. but they all want to feel (laughs) valued. Everybody wants to feel valued. What they think is important, maybe that's not important to you, but it's something you have to listen to and explore more and gives you a better appreciation, I think, where they're coming from.
1: That's a really wise statement. So, I mean, for our listeners here, you, you were the director of player health and performance for the Atlanta Braves. Mm-hmm. Which is essentially a high performance role? Would you agree to that? Yeah, it's it was a different name for a high performance director. So high performance, where you and I have worked in in sports, is like you're you're coordinating all these different departments, right? Mm-hmm. Why don't you explain what you did there, and then I, I want to take this in a, a little different direction <laughs> after you say that. Oh,
0: that smile! This is going to be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It, so Atlanta, what, uh, what an unbelievable experience. I went over there thinking, okay, this is my dream job. Like I get to oversee the strength department, the medical department, nutrition, the psychological services, and, and really start to shape things. So what I was really going over there for was really continuity of the system. So coordinate, if you will, mm-hmm. of all the systems and all the services within the major leagues, within the minor leagues. And I think the first thing you do when you go into those roles, you just, you don't know what you don't know. And this was the first time they had had this kind of role too. So they had a vague idea, but they didn't know either. So I knew I was probably going to spend most of my time with the major league club. And so I think the first thing I started looking at was like, okay, got to hire good people. You, You can't do it alone. There's no doubt about that. It's just too tall of a Any, I think anytime you go into any of these roles, like you learn that pretty quick when you get in a leadership role that you can't do it on your own. The people that do, uh, they either learn quickly or they fail
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. They learn quickly
0: that they can't do it or, or they fail. Mm. So continuity of our systems and then putting money back into, that was the first thing I went to. I remember our CFO with, and our, our general manager was like, we need to get funds to educate our staff. And so we started putting platform or a foundation, like an educational foundation together of like, Hey, this is what we as a staff are going to be about. And this was, uh, this was the, so major league, minor league strength and medical staff at the time. And we sat around and talked about like, okay, what's, what's important to us as a group. Um, Cause I, I knew what was important to me as the director, you, you, you do have oversight over that, those things, but Again, I think you have to give ownership to to the group and all these things. So we sat down, we started mapping those things out, and then got an idea of like, okay, like individual continuing education, and then group continuing education, and like these are the things that people are going to people are going to come and look for our people eventually. That's that's the goal, I think, of any leadership role. You're trying to you're trying to develop your people. Number one but you're trying to develop them so they can also see out there what their goals and their visions are. And so by investing back in the people, I, I think it gave, gives you that opportunity, but we knew like they're, if they're going to come for an Atlanta brave um, and we talk about this same right now with the Dodgers that they're going to be coming and looking for their specific things they're looking for. Now there's autonomy for, for everybody's different. And so you're not trying to make, 25 versions of yourself. So it's like you just provide structure and then let their creativity kind of run with it from there. So invest in the people. And then there's just like a lot of little things I think that you don't think about when you go into some of these roles, it's, it's like starting a, I mean, you're an entrepreneur now, so it, but
1: <laughs> I, I, I don't have, I'm just have. listening, <laughs> laughing inside. Cause I'm like, yes, yes, <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I mean, you don't until
0: I went into that role. Like I don't think I fully appreciated what it means to like the little details that go into starting a business that if you go into a like a well-oiled machine, like usually those things are already in place. So when you're going to put in a a system, if you will, then like paperwork and and, and just processes in general like hey, again, like we're going to have the same arm care
1: routine How long did it take you to get the continuity? Oh,
0: something, you know, and and that was the key, I think, of hiring some of the right people because that accelerated it. But I'd say by going into year two, we had a lot of like our processes, at least were in place at that point. We did not have, I would say, all the the chess pieces probably where we wanted as far as personnel. But we were we were going through that process, mm-hmm. and that was kind of our okay. Like, we took care of a lot of these processes. Talk about to-do lists and a, had a lot of those. <laughs> but then it was like, okay, you you have to have. It's all about the people, and and this is no disrespect to the people that were there when I got there. But like, when you go in, and you have a, a vision as the leader of the department, you need people that also like share that vision. And and gotcha. it becomes yeah. and it and it becomes clear I think after after a year. And I don't I don't think it's fair to you, you can't go in and just assume anything. So I think that's what that first year really does for people.
1: People will reveal themselves. Yes,
0: in the environment. And this is what I remember having this conversation with the front office even in that the interview for for the role. The environment will weed out who's a fit and who's not. And so, yeah, So we went into that next year really like, okay, like, how do we just, you know, you're not going to get right on probably every hire, but how do we minimize that? And so I spent a lot of time with the psychologist we had brought on and we were developing and he's, he's the brains of it. So I I don't want to take credit for that, but developing like the interview process that we had, which was Mm
1: -hmm.
0: taking a lot of that um,
1: over here as well. Hiring is so crucial. I, I, somebody said once, like, hiring is, like, so critical, but nobody does it well. I, You know, I agree and disagree. I've been in situations or I have gone through interview processes where you're like, wow, that was done really, really well. And then other times you're like, geez, you know? <laughs> so, you know, can you outline a few of the things that you think are really important about a hiring process? Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I think... Getting the entire department, or at least um, a a good majority of your department, involved on the front end, to me, is really Mm -hmm. important because those reps that the maybe the younger staff members are getting, I mean, those are invaluable. I I remember the first interview I did; I I had no idea what I was doing, (laughs) you know. But like, so the earlier you can get staff members involved in that process, I, I think the better. I think it's important that you. You have to have clarity as a department, and this is part of, I think, just a leadership group in general. You have to have clarity of like what you stand for, because once you know what you stand for, now you can look for qualities out of that. And that's what we started doing with, uh, with our questioning. So leading up to, like I'd say, the main interview, it's, it's a lot of subjectivity, uh, but we knew we wanted to be as objective as we could. So a lot of our questions are geared toward specific characteristics that, that we're looking for. So do you use behavioral interviewing to
1: pull that out? Yeah. yeah. Um, and,
0: and our big thing is like man we want to stress. So a lot of these roles in pro sports, like I mean stress is stress is all self-induced.'t <laughs> from, from my perspective, but one big thing is like man, when you put a clock on somebody and you throw, a curveball at them right out of the chute and they have to react like you're going to stress some people out because most people haven't done that in an interview either. So when you can do that and then follow up my opinion with your questions and how many times you're going to do that, that may vary, but then follow that. You're going to get very raw and real answers from people. And they can't, I feel like once you've been stressed out, then you're going to get the real person and you're, you can't fool it. You know, you can't cheat that system. And, and that that was our thing going into it. It Was like, man, we've never done it. Th- I've never done it this way. Um, the individual I worked with uh, had a military background, so that certainly helped. <laughs> um, but it totally revamped even how I like my ear for listening in interviews of like what you start picking up on. Like, if it's a conversation and you're talking to them on the phone, people can talk around things, and you may not pick up on it. But you when you
1: have a very specific goal you know if they've answered it or not Mm -hmm. no this is good man i some of the things that you're saying i implemented in my last job because of some experiences in the military realm they're just ahead in a lot of areas and like why not i'm not saying well because they have to deal with stress and their stress is like very it's finite stress meaning like there could be a final ending if, if you don't get this right, people's lives could be lost. And so the moment you want to, re- you don't want to realize that somebody, how somebody handles stress in a situation like that. But if you look at sports or any business or any endeavor where you're hiring somebody, there's, you know, when those stress points are going to happen. So to me, put them under stress yeah. so that you know how they're going to react. Cause I don't want to find out then. Yeah
0: everything gets
1: amplified for better or worse. Right. So wise, so wise. And it's counterintuitive. A lot of people, I think, and especially in the sporting world, like, Hey, come on in, let's get up on the whiteboard and let's look at the technical tactical piece. You know, what would you do to this cover? I'm just talking about football or whatever. That is honestly like, yes, there are some unicorns, but most people aren't a unicorn. Yeah. That's not the deciding factor. Can you actually access working memory when it? Sorry, go ahead. When it matters no, the most. No, I
0: I totally agree. I, I think that's uh, especially at the when you're in these roles, like you get put under the gun constantly. Like, yes. I mean, my my phone was going off. I, I remember getting phone calls on standing in line at like my grandparents' house to get Thanksgiving dinner, <laughs> you know, like Christmas Eve, I've gotten, gotten phone calls. Like, so I, this stuff doesn't stop and everything was supposed to be done yesterday, more often than not. So how are you going to respond to that? And, and I think that's the, uh, that's probably what's taken me back to like so much breath work <laughs> in my career mm-hmm. because there's an accumulation of that too. Because you do find out who can handle uh finite stress to your point. But now you gotta think about what's what's the repercussion on the back end, uh, the chronic stress, and like how mm-hmm. to, how do you start dealing with that? And like, because I think that's a toll that that starts to take on high performing industries that, that probably gets overlooked quite a bit. People that have been in these roles for a while. They get very good because they've handled situational things. But there's some things that take a long time to, to shed.
1: Yeah, I call it the low-grade fever of stress.
0: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Because it is, it's like there's a constant, there's constant inflammatory process that's happening within mm-hmm. you. And and you think like, generally when someone gets stressed, so a tight situation or Let's say you're even learning a new skill for that, that matter. People usually hold their breath. <laughs> so it's like, okay, mm. like so our, our CO2 levels raising, our O2 levels is, is is depleting. That can do some good things physiologically, but it can also do some bad things physiologically.
1: So what does your breath work look like in the morning? Oh,
0: so in the morning, um, so I, I do a few things actually throughout the day. So I do something called a natty shooting in the morning, which just balances. It's supposed to help balance each side. It's a, like it's an Indian meditative technique. And then I honestly, I just sit at that point and I just try to focus on my breath. Like I'm trying to sharpen that skill of my focus and again, coordinating it with my breath by no means an expert, but as that skill improves and my ability to go back to my breath, if my mind starts wandering and I can bring it back, like I start to remember those things during the day. And like, if, if I got, let's say a phone call that's coming up and like, it kind of makes me, if I feel a little anxious, like I go to my breath and I can kind of bring it back. So I just, honestly, I sit there until either uh, the dogs won't stop (laughs) jumping on me or, uh, or I just, I'm, I'm, I just feel like I'm at a good place. I do a lot of breath training with my actual workouts. Um, I, I use a little device, so whether I'm trying to work my tidal volume of my breathing, so just to be mm-hmm. able to expand that, or my um, respiratory frequency, like I'm going to be training that with my workouts. And a lot of my warm-ups are kind of geared towards maximizing the ability to move air and air is energy (laughs) at the end of the day. Um, So better I can do that, better off I'm going to be. And then I actually do hypoxic work a lot of times before bed. So again, like small doses of hypoxia can be great for recovery. You go up on a flight, for instance, that's an acute stress, which we travel a ton in the sports world. Your oxygen level actually stays the same, but it's that CO2 level that actually starts to drop off. And so try to bring that back up. So it's a big vasodilator and anti-inflammatory. Do do uh, so with this, well, with athletes, I generally start them with breath holds. Now, I use a device where I can, I'll either go big bag or a small bag. And I I'll, there's a few different ways I'll do it. And it's really like slow and controlled breathing back into this bag, but you're never like getting that full breath. So I have SpO2 sensor on when I do it. And I'll do like eight to 10 minutes at night before I go to bed. And it'll make you super sleepy. The The breath holds like athletes will tell you, like they'll fall asleep when they're like in the middle. Tell of us doing how to do it. Hold. I
1: want to hear it.
0: <laughs> tell me how to do it. Uh, so the breath holds like we're, this is, would be the starting point. I'll literally just give them like whether, whether it's their phone or a stopwatch, they'll have an SpO2 sensor on and then we'll just start them like, Hey, blow all your air out, hold your breath as long as you can at that point. Mm. And then let them feel like they're recovered. Just try to keep it as simple as possible, honestly. And then they'll go again and then they have to accumulate time. So we're we'll trying to start them like five, between five and eight minutes of accumulated time. They'll feel different afterwards for sure. Where did you learn this? So a combination of people. Uh, there's, there's some people actually down in Austin, Texas that do a lot of work. Well, they're split between Austin and a place just outside Winnipeg. Uh, a guy named Brian Kozak, big in the hockey world. Trained a lot of different athletes. Learned a ton from him. And then uh, a place called Evolve Performance down in Austin, Texas. So... They're actually building a new device right now. So um, from a breathing perspective, but uh, a lot of it's like you have to adapt. They'll use this device for a lot of their things. And like in our world, we have to adapt. Like I know I'm not going to be able to just put this breathing device in a guy's hand and he's going to do it. You
1: <laughs> know, that's mm-hmm. not so that's you're using not like real. a boxy or something like
0: that. Uh, I, use, I use a moxie for I guides a ton of my training and this is called a Spiro tigers, the breathing device, the NX. Oh uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I know what that is. Use the, up
0: the Moxie has been eye-opening, to say the least. Like I said, I've worn it on flights. That's how I found out. Like a like a lot of the changes that are happening, guides a lot of my recovery between like when I'm training. Uh, I Omega Wave every morning as well. Again, that's just like the adaptability portion of it, and see how things start syncing up. Recently, did a continuous glucose monitor for about two months. And that was, that was, it changed my perspective right now. Yeah. It changed my perspective on some things
1: without a doubt. It's uh Chris Morris. Uh, He was on the podcast. We've been talking a lot about glucose regulation and how it's like one of the things like you really want to track because it kind of, it has such a cascading effect on all these other systems but um, this is really cool. So for the person that's listening that has five minutes, yeah, what do you what do you suggest? And go to your breath. So like maybe the breathe app on their Apple Watch or something like that, or five minutes or just in and out. Yeah, I, honestly, like
0: if like the easiest place for for me to start was literally like just sitting there, and I feel like meditation is kind of like a, a buzz thing, but nobody really knows how to do it unless you've been trained by somebody. And so what's helped me with any of that, like, and this is one thing I think about working out that always, uh, what I've, like why it's kind of my, like my safe space. Well, and you're, and you're a father on top of this, but when you're in a lot of these roles, you never have time, like quiet time, really. You're never really alone. So just being able to sit in a quiet place and, focus on like your inhale and your exhale and and Mm -hmm. maximize needs. You don't have to push it. I would literally just, just sit there for five minutes, focus on your inhale, focus on your exhale and just keep going. And then as you feel your mind start wandering, you know, you're thinking about something you have to do later, try to redirect it back to that. It's a little bit of a competition with yourself.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Dr. Haberl, he talks about mindfulness is, is like learning to aim your attention. Yeah. You know, attention is the currency of performance. And it's like, it's really like stress mitigation, all that stuff is a second order effect. It's really like, can I put my attention where I want it when I want it? I feel like stress ramps up for me in certain situations. Like I'm becoming more mindful of like, okay, go back to your breath. Yeah. Am I, like, don't breathe in deep, breathe out long. You know, breathing yeah. in deep is like the worst thing you can do when you're anxious because that actually ramps up. So <laughs> people are like, take a deep breath. No, don't do that. <laughs> that Well, that's the funny thing is, and like, at least what
0: I've learned, like, man, you got to blow the CO2 out in those situations. You, yes. the, the deep breath isn't, isn't where it's at. Like the more CO2 you can blow off, the more opportunity it has for you to take like, a sufficient or an
1: efficient breath of air in you've heard about the physiological size mm. so there's this thing called a physiological sigh uh, all animals do it your dogs do it people do it when they're really sleepy it's like you do two inhales two consecutive inhales through your nose followed by an exhale and what it does is it dumps off a ton of co2 and it's the fastest way to de-stress so I heard Andrew Huberman talking about this, and then I went down a deep dive on the physio. I mean, it's this has been going on for a long time. So it's like, like a long exhale. You do two or three, four of those in a row, and it is like all of a sudden you just feel this bringing it back. Um, you should look into it.
0: It's fun, It's funny you bring up sign. I was talking to a, a
1: friend the other day. He works
0: with um, an NBA player. It's kind of like his guy, a strength coach, and they do a lot of skill work, and and they actually, they wear the moxie. He wears the moxie a lot when he trains, Um, and one of the things he was seeing when you get into some of these occluded states, so when you get into these occluded states, you know, CO2 goes way up, and a lot of traditional training in sports is really done in these states. I mean, that's just the reality of what a lot of training's been done in what he started seeing is the longer amount of time this athlete spent in that state, when he would finish, if he would get interviewed, he would sigh a lot or yawn a Mm. lot. And so it's, I think to your point, that's just a a physiological response, whether we know it or not, it's subconscious response. It's
1: interesting. This has been absolutely fascinating. Like, (laughs) Where I thought we were going to start and then where we've ended up is like, I'm going to have to keep following. I have so many notes right now of things to look up, and I'm sure other the folks that are listening have as well. Andrew, I'm so thankful that you came on today. I mean, we didn't even really touch on what happened this year, but congratulations again on winning a world championship. That is like an unbelievable accomplishment in such difficult times. And I'm sure you brought a lot of joy to people in Southern California. That's the great thing about sports right now to me is that like these players have been able to bring joy to people in a very difficult time. And so thank you for being a part of that. And uh, congratulations on an amazing season. And where can people find you? Like if they want to, you on Twitter yeah, or so I'm on LinkedIn t- or Twitter.
0: Twitter. LinkedIn Instagram uh, I'll have to get you the the handles not really sure. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I'll even, I'll even pass along my my email address like I, I do a lot of that like the try to connect with people just through email and it's, it's the easiest way to connect and like people either can respond or not but I'll get I'll get to it <laughs> yeah. yeah it just may need some time but yeah those are the easiest places.
1: Well thank you again. I appreciate you and I appreciate you taking the time for us today. Yeah thank you and glad to be on. Thanks for joining me today on another episode of the Blueprint podcast. If you found this episode valuable, sign up for my high performance newsletter at www.eritcoorum.com And if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Ericquorum, Twitter at Ericquorum Facebook and I'm also on LinkedIn.